Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are with us for the first time. Thank you for making us your church home for an hour today. Appreciate it. We're going to continue with our series on men and women of the Bible, and today we're going to concentrate on David, the Old Testament saint. We have spoken about Adam, Eve, Sarah, Joseph, Ruth, Noah, and today David. The passage is coming out of 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. The title of the message is David, a man after God's heart. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, verse 14, your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Lord, help us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name. Two things in this passage I want to bring out, that the Lord actually sought for somebody, and two, he appointed him. The context of this is that Saul, who is the first legitimate king of Israel, has not obeyed the Lord. Samuel, who was the judge, who Saul replaced, a judge was not a king, a judge was a leader who settled disputes and heard from God on behalf of the people. If times came for military conflict to protect the nation, he could rally the troops, but he had no governmental jurisdiction over people's lives or property. He pretty much was a man to whom people would come for wisdom and understanding. Samuel also uh, doubled as the priest during that time because he was of the tribe, we believe, of Levi as well. And so this was different than the king. The king had monarchical authority, governmental authority. He had the ability to tax the people in order to provide for his servants and his palace and his reign as well as the army, a full-time army. There was no full-time deployed army under the judges. Men would just come once time came to protect their regions or the nation and they would volunteer for battle. So a king was very, very different and God had designed originally his, his people to be governed by families, not by a king. It's not that a king was bad, it just wasn't preferred. And so he decided to do it by way of judges. Moses was a judge, Joshua was a judge. All of the book of Judges talks about the period of time of the judges. Samuel is the last judge. The people have said, we want a king just like all the other nations around us. Bad decision. Because God was supposed to be their king. And they were supposed to be governed individually with as little government from man as possible. Because God internally governed their heart and their actions. But they really wanted to have a national identity, much like the other nations, rather than the kind of kingdom God wanted to give them as expressed from heaven to earth. I don't have time to go into the details of how that's different, but it is so different. As a result, God gave them the king they deserved. Not one they didn't. Saul was not a good king. He looked the part. He was he was handsome. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was the political icon that people would vote for. But his heart wasn't really right. He was fearful of man. He wanted to please man more than he wanted to please God. It got him in big trouble. 
Which brings us to this passage where God says, you're done. Being done didn't mean that he didn't have a place in heaven, but it did mean that whatever stewardship he had here on earth, he had to forfeit. He no longer was going to be king. Now, at a moment when God says, you're done with the stuff I gave you because you didn't do well with it, that's the point at which the people, the person, whoever is done, needs to say, I understand, I'm sorry, I'm no longer worthy to be in this spot, I give it back to you. Saul held on to it. This was problematic. God was looking for somebody else, and generally speaking, you don't want two guys who believe they need to have the throne alive at the same time. That's problematic. And David didn't even ask for it, but he was the man who was supposed to receive it. And God went and found him while Saul was still on the throne. Difficult to manage. Lord, this, this would have been the conversation with me. Could you wait until he dies before you anoint me? Because I don't think he's going to receive my appointment as a as very, very happy moment. I think he's going to be mad. He's going to look at me as a rival. He thinks his son is supposed to take it. And, 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 and I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to get into any of that. But all of the, all of the, 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 the perceived competition, though David was not in competition with Saul, Saul was with David, the perceived competition would be that which would form something in David that would allow him to be a king unlike any other. And so great was he that God decided he would use his name to define his son, meaning use David's name to define God's son. And that when people saw Jesus, they called him the son of David. David was outstanding. Now, I know many of you go to the flaws that he had and the mistakes that he made. I get it. But what he did on, on par, on balance, was extraordinary. Extraordinary. And it's even more marvelous when you understand he did not have a template. There was no example he could look to in the Bible and say, what should I do here? I wonder if somebody's been through that. We have all these examples in Scripture that help us understand how to perform best when we don't know what to do. There is not a circumstance through which you will go that hasn't been gone through by somebody in the Bible. This is why you need to read your Bible every day because you don't know what to do unless you understand what has been done. There aren't anything, any, there's nothing new under the sun. Somebody's been through it and either they responded poorly which gives you a, a leverage point to say, oh, I'm not going to do that. Or they responded great and said, Lord, help me do that. But we try to reinvent the wheel all the time. Think nobody's been through this before. Yes, they have. The, the, the thing that makes David so great and many of the patriarchs is that they were the groundbreakers. They were the forerunners. They were the point people. Nobody had been through what David had been through and responded like David responded. It was a wow moment the entire time. How do you live with somebody who considers you their enemy, but you don't consider them yours? How do you love somebody who hates you? How do you honor somebody who has your throne? They got your spot. God's anointed you, but they're sitting on the spot where you need to be. They think it's theirs, so it's yours. Do you go and take it? When they're fighting you, when they're trying to chase you down, when they, have, they brought out the CIA, 
They brought out the, the, the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers, the Green Beret. Everybody is searching. The finest soldiers are searching for David and his family to kill them because Saul looks at him as a competitor to the throne. It's a time of war. You have the privilege of taking somebody's life who's trying to take yours. At least self-defense, David does none of that, though he has many opportunities to do so. Where did he get this? Everybody else who's, who, who finds himself in military conflict sees that the opportunity to dispatch of your enemy is a good decision. Yet David has two of them, and he doesn't take advantage of either of them. And his men are mad because they're on the run with him. And we're not talking about on the run for a couple of months. We're talking about for almost five to six years on the run. And his men are saying, hey, we're tired of running. Look, God has given your enemy into your hands. This is the Lord. Kill him now. Kill him now. Kill him now. Kill him now. We're at war. Kill him. This is legal. You're good. You're good. God won't be mad at you. You're good. David says, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. Meaning this, if God's given me the throne, he's going to give it to me. I'm not taking it. Nobody had ever made that decision. David was outstanding. Outstanding. And it said in, in Acts chapter 13, verse 36, that David served the purpose of God for his generation, and he slept with his fathers. His purpose allows us to understand that there are things that God wants to do in certain generations, in certain time periods with certain people that are different than he wants to do in other generations in certain time periods with certain people. David needed to be the one who was the, the first anointed king of Israel that would have God's heart to be the example of what the Messiah would be when the Messiah would come. How the Messiah would, although he had the power, not vanquish his enemies. He said to Pilate, as Pilate said, are you, are you the son of God? King of the Jews? It is as you say, well, if you're so powerful, why don't you do something about it? Don't you know I have authority over your life? And Jesus just gave him a glimpse verbally, just a glimpse of the power he had. He said, yeah, about that. I've got 12 legions of angels that I could call at any moment to, to protect me but I choose not to. And one angel, one dispatched of 185,000 Syrian soldiers that were attacking Israel in one night. A, 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 a legion is 6,000. A legion is 6,000. He had 12 legions. Just a little bit of power. He never used it. David was phenomenal. His purpose was different than Abraham's. They all fit together into a puzzle that allows us to understand the whole story of redemption, but his purpose was different than Abraham's. His purpose was different than Joseph's. They all had their character challenges through which they needed to go in order to understand who God was in their life and let everybody understand who God was in their life. And those challenges were unique to them, but it's important for you to understand that in this generation, you have yours. 
In your circumstances, you have yours. And your job is to fulfill the purpose for which God placed you on the planet now. And although I'm not quite sure the ultimate reason God put me on the planet, I have some good ideas as I've walked with him for 40 years, what I'm supposed to do next. There may be more things beyond my sight, but I do know why he's put me down here now. I'm not confused. I'm not walking in the dark. I know that I'm here primarily to see Washington, D.C. bow its knee to Christ. And if I can't do it in my generation, I'm training up a whole bunch of A.J.'s and Jared's and Tellison's and Miata's and Hannah Beth to see it done in theirs. And all you young people whose names I did not mention, don't get mad at me. All y'all I love. And in a little bit, I'll give this all to them. Although it has nothing to do with whether I can't do it anymore. It has everything to do with whether they can. I have a bunch of ministers that realize that I'm in 15 months, 12 months, whatever it is, I'm not going to be being senior pastor of this house. You're supposed to say, oh. (laughs) I don't know what the silence means. I'm a little insecure. I know you love me. I'm just playing with you. But when it comes to, to that, they come to the pastor. Wait a minute now. I listened to you back in the 90s, and I listened to you in the odds, and I listened to you now. You're better than you were, and you're getting better. Why in the world do you want to stop? You're, you're at, the, you're at the, the best place to influence the most. I said, oh, well, I'm not going to argue with you. I think I am getting better. I really do. I really do, but it doesn't have anything to do with me trying to be better as a presenter. It has everything to do with me trying to be better as a Christian. And if I can love God better, sooner or later, this is going to sound better to you all the time. And so if it does sound better to you and others, that's a confirmation that at least I'm doing Tuesday right. I want to do Tuesday right, not Sunday. Sunday is just the overflow of my Wednesday. That's all it is. I'm not trying to be a great presenter. I'm just trying to be a great human. And I got a long way to go. I mean, I got so many flaws still, but I'm better than I was six months ago. And so they say, why in the world do you want to quit? Well, you you don't know. You need to keep going. I said, no, no, no. That's what they said about Jesus. Jesus said, it's better that I go. And he was 33, and he was the best minister on the planet, best ever seen, best ever heard. And he thought it was a good idea to go. And they thought, no, 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 no. We gave up everything for you. You need to stay. You're the best. We aren't any good at what you do. We don't even understand what you say. We have no idea what you're talking about. Why do you talk in parables? Make no sense to us. We don't know. That was them all the time. All the time they had no clue. Jesus said, you will. It's better that I go. I know what my purpose is. To see what God wants to do for the city, not only through my generation, but the next. And I'm happy to be able to give it to them at whatever it looks like for my ministry to be at its apex. I'm happy. I don't feel any loss. I feel gain. Because my job was to, to disciple and to train and to develop and to hand off. You've got to find out what your purpose is. Woe to the person, even though it's a wonderful thing that whenever somebody expires, they get to go to glory. Woe to the person who loves Jesus, goes to heaven, and doesn't figure out why they were here before they expire. You wasted so many years. And listen, it's not a secret. 
God's not trying to hold it from you, but he is trying to, to keep it from you so that you might seek. Meaning he's not withholding the information so that you will never receive it. He's just holding it for you so that you can receive it as a result of your search because it's really valuable. And generally speaking, valuable things are not found on the corner. Valuable things are locked away in vaults to protect them. And you've got to seek with all of your heart to find out what it is God's called you to do. Going back to the the passage, he was seeking for man. And the fact that God is seeking is an anthropomorphic term, which means God is speaking as if he's speaking in men's terms. God knows stuff. He knows the end from the beginning. He's not ignorant. He's not surprised at what humanity does. He knows the person that he's going to choose to do whatever he wants to do. But he's speaking anthropomorphically in order for us to relate to the idea of how rare it is to try to find somebody who wants to do what he wants to do. It is so rare. God is seeking. He sought for a man who would have his heart. And having his heart is not one of these rare things that is allocated just to a a few certain people on the planet. Having his heart is something that can be developed by anybody who wants to have it. Anybody who wants to seek after it. And there's some qualities. And I'm going to mention a few today. I don't have all of them. But there are some qualities that allow us the privilege of knowing what it looks like to be sought after by God. Not just for the purpose of salvation but for the purpose of doing something on the planet that matters. And David was sought after, and our job is this. As I go through these criteria, make his search short. Don't make him have to look all over the place. You be the first one. Like the teacher asks a question in the class, whatever it is, your hand goes up. You be on the short list. Make his search short. Second Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the entire earth looking for a man for whom he can show himself strong. He's not looking for a capable human being. None of us are capable of doing his will. We have to have him to be able to do it. He's not looking for smart people. If he was, he wouldn't have chose me. He's not looking for strong people. He's not looking for, 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 for whimsical people or people who are good in personality and being able to. He's just looking for anybody that he can work through, regardless of the flaws of their humanity, that he can work through and do something great. And if anybody is evidence that he can use anybody, it's me. I don't know why in the world I, I, I do. I'm, I'm going to give you an answer in a minute. But I don't know why God sent me to Washington with this vision. I don't know. But I think it, it might be that, that everybody else said no. Because I surely couldn't have been his first choice. I sure, if I was his first choice, that's real sad. Because I, I was 21. Are you kidding me? By the time I came to Washington, I had been born again. All of 17 months. I got right with God in March of 80, uh, April, April, March, spring, right before spring break in 1981. I went into the ministry first week in December. Seven and a half months I was in ministry. 
Eight and a half months after that, I was here in Washington on my way driving down 70. And, and I, all I wanted to do was be a, 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 a campus minister that didn't get kicked off campus. <laughs> Just not do anything stupid at Howard University. And God had bigger plans, and I didn't know what they were. All I wanted to do was be faithful, but I, I sit here and look at all the 37 years that have passed and what has become us and how he has built our vision, and it just blows my mind because I didn't think you would want to be a part of anything that I wanted to do. And I didn't think we'd be who we are. And, and God has, has a lens that is much more broad and, and far-reaching than the one that we see. My point is this, all you got to do is just say, me first. Just raise your hand when he says, I'm looking for somebody. <laughs> right here! He's not looking for qualifications. He's looking for availability. He sought after a man who had his heart. Now, what are the, some of the things that allow you to understand how to have the heart of God? First of all, God sought. Secondly, he appointed an appointment is that which confirms to people that there is something that this person is supposed to do that is unique from everybody else. We call appointments today ordinations. Ordinations are those, which, those, those moments when we bring people up to the stage at a given time. We recognize that they have served well in the congregation for a period of time or in the community. And then we lay our hands on them placing them in a certain spot of service, not elevating them to a certain spot, but recognizing what God has already done in the spot where they've been serving. That appointment, ordination, is something that comes from heaven to say, yes, I approve, and it's supposed to come from the congregation so that we have a double witness, and, and that you say, I have seen their service, I value their service, I amen what is happening today. That's what the appointment is supposed to be. And in order to get to that point, I'm, I'm convinced that there are some things that need, need to happen. Now, when God said, I'm a, I've appointed this one who will look over my flock, rule over my people, Israel, in his heart, he had already done so. It hadn't happened naturally yet. Samuel would go out and find him. But in God's heart, he had already made it so. It was going to become natural when Samuel anointed David, and then the people began to anoint him later. But this appointment is really important because there are some criterion upon which God then evidences to folks how in the world you got in this spot. Anybody can feel like they are called by God. But if people don't, you're going to be awful lonely. I'm not saying you aren't. You, you've been anointed and graced in your prayer closet and everything seems to be powerful and integral and right. But if nobody's following you, you leader, you just on a long walk. That's all. You're just on a long walk. If you want to make an impact, you've got to have people following you. Now, it doesn't mean they have to like what you're saying. It doesn't mean they have to agree with what you're saying. There are a lot of leaders, prophets primarily, who had to speak hard words to the people of Israel, and nobody liked it. And yet they were worthy of being followed. But it didn't mean that the people didn't believe they weren't called. They just didn't like what they said. So you can still have the belief and the affirmation of people believing that you are now called of God. I just don't like what you said. Jeremiah being, the, being primary, as well as Ezekiel. 
Because they prophesied some things that nobody liked, but everybody knew they were a prophet. There needs to be the affirmation from people. And David comes to to Saul, this king who is going to be deposed in a minute. And Goliath, the Philistines, are confronting the the nation of Israel. And Goliath is out there taunting. I mean, he's talking a lot of lip, a lot of lip for 40 days. He said, send somebody out here to face me, please, and tell them to take off their skirt. I mean, this is what he was saying on a regular basis, just trashing them. And all the people of Israel were just sitting there. They had champions. Saul had, had been a, a great champion for uh, Jabesh Gilead, delivered the, the city. David had vanquished 20 Philistines with him and his, his, his uh, sidekick, his armor bearer. And he had accomplished a great victory. He was the leader. He was the champion for Israel, Jonathan being Saul's son. I mean, there were people who could do it, but Saul did not want anybody to be sacrificed to Goliath because he believed Goliath was a warrior that was unparalleled in his skill, size, strength, and speed. He was nine feet tall. He was probably 340 pounds and, and probably ran a 4'2". This is how scary he was, and this is how confident he was that he could come out by himself and taunt the entire army of Israel. Nobody does that unless they've got some some notches in their belt. David happens to be delivering lunch to his brothers who are in the army. David's too young to even enroll. Too young, 16, 17 years old. He can't even enlist. He hears this giant taunting the army. He gets angry. He says, what's to be done for this joker? I mean, if I take him out, what's to be done for the man who takes him out? He said, well, his family doesn't have to pay taxes the rest of his life, and he gets to marry into the royal line. (laughs) You tell a 16-year-old that he gets to marry a princess? (laughs) That'll motivate him in a hurry. He goes to the king and says, hey, I can take this guy. Let me go. Saul looks at him. Now, he says, quote, Goliath has been a warrior from his youth up. You are still a youth. So why in the world do you think you can handle this guy? Well, it was a time I was caring for my father's sheep, and um, there was a lion and a bear that came and took a lamb. And I went out, and I, I took the lamb from its mouth, and then when the lion and the bear turned on me, I grabbed it by its beard and stabbed it with a knife and killed it. (laughs) Now, he's 16 now, and he's testifying as if this happened in the past, which it did, which means, like, you were 14 when this happened? (laughs) First of all, you have to know the context, because we read this historically, and we think this was normal. No shepherd was ever required to account for his sheep if a a predator came and took it. A shepherd was required to account for his sheep if he lost one. So it was taken out of his pay if he lost a sheep. But if the lamb or the sheep was attacked by a predator, all you were required to do is bring part of the carcass back and say, not my fault. Because no shepherd was ever thought to be responsible when a lion or a bear came and you go fight it to take the sheep out of its mouth. 
the common idea was lions got to eat too. <laughs> Nobody ever thought they would, they would require a shepherd to sacrifice their life for a four-footed animal. So when David shares his story, Saul is going, you did what? And not only with a lion, you did it a second time with a bear? And it looks like this was a practice? <laughs> Who are you? This is why Saul says, I don't know anybody with the courage you have because you did what nobody expected. Tries to put armor on him, doesn't fit. David goes out, faces Goliath, takes him down. Bravery, having the courage to face the spiritual forces that come against you or those you love on a regular basis and stare them down with the word of Almighty God. That's one of the criteria that allow God to find his way to you in a hurry and make his search short. You care like that. Secondly, worship. David wrote half of the book of Psalms. And his writing was extraordinary. We don't have any of the scores, meaning the music, but we do have the lyrics. And the way he integrated who God was into his circumstances, though he was going through great difficulty, and come out on the, on the back end with encouragement rather than bitterness. How he viewed his enemies from time to time, though he wanted God to fix this, it was one of these, do something, do something that protects me in a way that doesn't vanquish those I love, as evidenced by the fact that in a time of war, you, you can go ahead and deal with your enemy as they would deal with you. And David was, was in a cave, hiding from Saul. Saul was so angry and so intimidated by David that he searched for David regularly with all the forces in the military. And David was, was on the run. His family was on the run. David had a bunch of men with him. They were on the run. They'd been on the run for anywhere from four to five, six years, having no home. It was so bad that he had, had, had actually immigrate to the Philistines, the people who, who he, he was infamous among because he had killed their, their, their giant, their best warrior. He had to immigrate to the Philistines, feign insanity while with them, to prove that he was out of his mind, he wasn't normal anymore, and then say that I don't even like Israel because Saul is trying to get me, and he lived among the Philistines for a good 18 months. And he, this was the enemy. This is how bad it was for him. One day he's in a cave hiding from Saul. Saul comes in to relieve himself. His men were with him, meaning David's men were with him, David's own men. His, David's men look and say, oh, 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 he doesn't know you're here, bro. Listen. Listen, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You, God, this, this is, oh, this is a moment. The Lord has appeared, heaven has opened. He has given your enemy into your hands, bro. We're home free now. Take him out. Take him out. David says this. How, how can I touch the Lord's anointed? Even though Saul looked at David as his enemy, David never looked at Saul as his. So unusual. He let his aggressor go free. He did it twice. He was able to take these circumstances of life and integrate his worship. His worship not just in song but his entire life and say, what I do every day, all the time, the decisions I make matter to God. 
And I can't have one way that I do life in church and another way that I do life at work. It's got to be one big ball that says integrity is important and whatever God says has something to do with everything that I do. Therefore, I am not going to compartmentalize him. It matters. Even though it's legal for me to take this man's life, it's not right. So I'm going to do highest and best rather than allowed. His writing is filled with this kind of dichotomy and you have to read sometimes between the lines and say, that's brilliant. That's amazing right there. That man knew how to worship. Bravery, worship. Third, have a parental mindset. Now I'm not talking about you need to be a parent. What I am saying is you have to think about the second generation. Now we don't see much of David's parenting throughout his, the, the narrative of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, um, 1 Kings, and not much in 1 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. We don't see much of David's narrative, uh, much of David's parenting, but we do. We do see something that Solomon says. In Proverbs chapter 4, all the way through Proverbs chapter 9, all the way through chapter 9, Solomon says this, and we look at the, the Proverbs as being the things that are some of the wisest sayings ever. And they are really good. If you want to start, if you want to figure out where you start in reading your Bible every day, it wouldn't be bad to start in Proverbs. That'll help you with decision making on a regular basis. Four through nine. He starts off in chapter four, verse three. He says, the words that my father taught me. Now, sometimes we skim over that and we, f- we forget because Solomon's writing that David taught him all this stuff. How did Solomon become so wise? He was able to use David's life as a leverage point for six chapters. David is teaching his son about how to live right and how to make great decisions. You want you want to be somebody that makes God's search short? Have a heart for the second generation. Even if you're not a parent, Love what God is doing down there and give your life for their benefit, raising them up, helping them. And then lastly, <clears throat> the appointment had, had a lot to do with the idea that David was to be a, a ruler over his people, a, a caretaker over the sheep of Israel. If you want to be somebody that God uses on a regular basis, you've got to care for people beyond you. Beyond yours. And the beauty of the human heart is that God has made it much like his. At least that's the initial, that's the initial stamp. There's no end to the capacity for your ability to love. It doesn't exist in the human heart. Now you can put limits on it if you want to. But you can love as much as you want. How you deal with the management of people is a different story. The capacity to be able to serve and care for folks, we all have limits. But how much you can love, you can love a bunch. That's why if you want to, once you've finished having kids, you can keep on adopting. And you can love 200 of them. You can love them all. You may not be able to care for them all. You get my point. That love has no bounds. 
And when you talk about caring for people, you're talking about caring for God's people. If you will allow the Lord to increase you on the inside and take away the borders that you have put there about what it means for you to care for people, even beyond your, your, your own well-being, oh, you, you've tapped into something that's God's heart. David was a man who set the example for us. And I pray that we would at least try to measure up at some level. Maybe you can't do all these things, but start with one. Start with bravery. Start with worship. Start with, with the ability to, to, to increase your soul. Whatever, but start someplace and say, Lord, I want to be on the track whereby I might be on the short list of people that you choose to appoint to help change this world for your goodness. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your grace. Help us to be empowered to live life best. To be like David, a man after your heart.